0: Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's
1: your host, Chris Conner.
2: Before we get started, I want to thank my sponsor, the Association of Commercial Professionals Life Sciences. ACPLS provides marketing, sales, and customer service professionals opportunities for ongoing education, networking, and professional development. Those networking and development opportunities have been very valuable to me personally. I think they'd be equally valuable to anyone listening to this podcast. So, to learn more, visit acp ls.org. And while you're there, Subscribe to the newsletter so you can receive content and activity updates. Now let's get back to the show. Hey everybody, welcome back. It is Thanksgiving week, so I don't have any new interviews for you, but if you haven't been a long-time listener to the podcast, I have a best of edition. So I've picked out some of the highlights from the last year. We'll hear from about seven different people that I've been lucky enough to speak to I want to thank first of all everybody who's participated in the podcast subscribed to the podcast regular listener I really appreciate everybody's uh, participation in making this thing uh, probably the most fun thing I do and hopefully useful and valuable to all you marketers as well is uh, I had a talk with Taia Ergeta. She was a general manager for LCMS at Agilent, and I worked for her at Varian. And she talked about how Marcom can change an organization, so Marcom taking a role as a leader. You and I recently had a discussion, and I thought a lot of what we talked about would be worth sharing to a broader audience. And I wanted to start with um, the idea that when we worked together at Varian, you introduced this idea of changing an organization through marketing. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. You know, I'd probably even be a little bit more radical and assert that you can actually change a whole organization dramatically and make it more successful through marketing communications. And the key principle behind that, as I, i laid it out in a couple of different positions that I had both in my previous world of tech as well as in life sciences, is that you always are more efficient and more effective at something if you start with your desired endpoint and work backwards from that, as opposed to kind of starting off and kind of generally doing things that you think are going to be helpful to getting to that endpoint. So so I should probably be a little more specific. So. You know, every company's desired endpoint is really for customers to buy their, their product. But what I found was that instead of focusing on that customer and their desired buying process and their, their, even their, their emotional and psychological makeup, most companies start at the other end, right? Um, start with a technology or a product idea. And they develop the product. They develop the selling process. And eventually, they get around to messages and, and uh, marketing materials. But using that approach of going from that side toward the endpoint usually ends up producing underperformance. Um, and. At, at best, if if the customer, if the product actually does meet the customer need, you, um, you actually waste time and you waste some resources because you're doing things in a way that makes sense to you, but then the customer has to contort to figure that out and to align themselves and their way of thinking and their needs to what you're talking about and producing. Now, that's kind of in the best case. In the worst case, though, what I've seen is that you actually fail because you developed a product that doesn't actually meet their needs. And there's no amount of great selling or marketing communication that can fix that. Right. Right.
2: And Taya also went on and we talked a little bit, we got into the topic of personas and then she talked about something which I think is going to be more and more important. Um, didn't specifically call it influencer marketing, but she referred to people who were influential in the industry and gave an example of how she and her Marcom team reached out to influential people in the industry. And that guided what they needed to develop in their product and in their messaging.
0: Exactly. And sometimes it's even people outside of the customer. I'll give you an example. When I was in the computing uh, arena, we, uh, we were way behind in mobile computing in Hewlett-Packard. And so the first thing that I did was hire a very aggressive, as we were doing a, a major turnaround of that business, first thing I did was to hire a very aggressive MarCom person. And I asked her to get us in and to set up meetings with the people who were really quite influential at that particular time. And those were the industry Experts. So there were you know, certain groups of market research organizations and press people who were particularly influential there. And we had some very rough meetings where they were very uncomplimentary about <laughs> our company and its status in the market. But through those meetings, we really learned what their criteria were going to be for writing about us in a positive way and even writing us about us at all. So in short order, we had a checklist of very specific things that we had to be able to say. I could go back and then organize my team and my work with my colleagues to make sure we did the things that would na- enable us to say those things. And I can tell you that within just a few months, we were all of a sudden being written up in all of the major articles and being um touted as a company that was serious and was making a big push in this marketplace.
2: So after Taia had mentioned figuring out what your customers actually want, I decided I would interview a scientist and find out from them directly what they thought about the kind of materials they got from Marcom. So I met Bob Kabelski on LinkedIn um, in a conversation based on a previous p- blog post I had made, and he was kind enough to come on the podcast and tell us about his buying process and what he likes to see in Marcom Materials. Moving on to a little more marketing communications thing, based on the LinkedIn exchange we had, where, where do you see that marketing communications organizations fall short when they're trying to persuade people about their instrumentation or to let people know about them?
3: Well, Keep in mind, as I said, I'm really a a hardware aficionado. So from my perspective, I find most marketed communication to be very pretty, but it's fluff. There are nice photos. They have attractive people with instruments in a nice, clean laboratory. Uh, There's a graphic or two. But being an analytical scientist, I want to see relevant data. And as a lab leader, I would also like to see an estimate of the cost, both purchase price and, and cost of ownership. For me, relevant data includes all the typical parameters for that type of instrumentation. As I said, like sensitivity using industry standards. But I just I don't want to see just numbers, but I'd like to see actual instrument output, so that I can determine if we're evaluating the data the same way. There have got to be five or six da- different ways of evaluating signal-to-noise ratio. And while you figure that the uh, any instrument vendor is going to use the one that gives the best results for their instrument, that doesn't help you necessarily to compare between two different companies. So one example of relevant data for me was in a J&W scientific catalog many, many years ago after the introduction of a more stable version of a CarboX stationary phase. And it showed a chromatogram with a new column superimposed on one after 100 injections and superimposed on one after a 1,000 injections. That gave me a belief that the technology, which of course was proprietary, uh, actually worked. And with, with my hardware exposure, I would rather see instrument schematics than a photo of people standing around the instrument. And if there's a novel technology that makes this instrument better than that instrument, I would like to see an explanation of that technology and help me understand the advantage. If I can understand the advantage, that'll win me over if the explanation is accurate. Okay. The worst thing that Marcom can do and I say Marcom, I certainly include sales in this as well, is to make technical mistakes or make irrelevant claims. When that happens, it loses me not only for that purchase, but potentially for future purposes as well, because the credibility has been challenged.
2: Now, Bob, in his podcast episode, talked quite a bit about what he thought about marketing as well as sales and the whole buying process that... uh, Um, Someone goes through when he's purchasing, in his particular example, an analytical instrument. And it turns out that a customer's experience during the buying process with a salesperson is the thing that has the most influence on customer loyalty. And that is something that I talked about with Chuck Drucker to a large extent in the next interview. And here's what he had to say.
1: Uh, the second thing or the second sort of problem was when I talked to uh, my colleagues uh, in starting this thing up and I, I did a whole bunch of market research. We did some you know, surveys and some focus groups and things. Um, a theme arose around raising the bar for commercial professionals in our space um, – you know our employers certainly do some some work on 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 developing their sales and marketing people but our research certainly identified that there was a need for us to band together and also raise the bar you know together
2: so i'm sure you're going to give us some specific examples and i'm hoping this is the right time but it, we had a previous conversation and you had mentioned an article in the harvard business review and you were kind enough to share that with me as well as some related articles and I will certainly link to those in the show notes. But I think you were suggesting that the concept of employee engagement uh, was an area where the organization could help its members. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Y- yeah, sure. Um so, so the concept is, is pretty straightforward in, in the article that, that you'll post. Uh, there's a chain of events that, that can lead to improved profits, which are what, what the companies that we work for generally are, are striving towards. But that chain of events starts with satisfied employees. And satisfied employees are far more productive and engaged, and those engaged employees – provide better service, which leads to higher customer satisfaction, loyalty, growth, and profit. That's sort of the this profit chain uh, that, that the article talks about. Um, so uh, that's it's great to have that vision, but putting it into action isn't always so simple. Um, so you've probably seen this. Many companies have instituted employee engagement surveys to, to measure employee engagement, and then they build programs to, to improve engagement after that. And then there's the uh, customer experience angle. There's a whole you know field now of customer experience marketing. You guys may have heard of the Customer Experience Professionals Association, uh, you know, and their whole goal is to advance customer ex- to advance customer experience management practices. And then you know you have so many companies that have dedicated resources to customer experience from you know every single interaction that happens. They're starting to look at those things and, and make them as best as they can be, um, but. But I would say from a commercial professional perspective, perhaps the the most compelling research that I've seen uh, on this idea of of customer loyalty was the work done by the conference executive board. They're the ones that uh, wrote the book, The Challenger Sale. And what they found was the the largest contribution by far uh, to customer loyalty stemmed from the purchasing experience, from the sales experience. In fact, uh, their data showed that this contribution was larger than the brand, Uh, and the product and service quality combined. Uh, So again, this idea of the experience that our customers get through buying our products and services, that's the biggest driver of customer loyalty. So if you kind of think about that, if your commercial team, if your sales and marketers uh, aren't engaged uh, at the beginning of that, sort of profit chain there is no way that you're going to be able to drive that customer loyalty and so you know from an association perspective we also saw that yes you know employers should work really hard to get uh, employees engaged but there's something that we all have in common uh, as commercial professionals in the life sciences and and we should be engaged and excited about what we do to help our customers which eventually and in our case uh, you know help help humankind as well
2: Now, quite a few episodes covered a topic which is near and dear to my heart, and that is content marketing. So the first one up was Nick Oswald from Bite Size Bio. And a couple of things that he said that I really like is um, he talked about how to be a mentor to your customers, but he, he puts it in such a nice way. He says, how can we make a friend and then find out what they might like to buy from us? So listen to what Nick has to say about using content for more than just selling people stuff. So, and there are other channels besides yours where they could distribute that same content. But yep. I guess talk a little bit of, about getting marketers to be more mentors.
4: I guess uh, the, the foundation for that comes from uh, realizing that, okay, you have, you know, if you have a bunch of inside in house scientists who are experts in their own right, they're the resource that are producing. Or perfecting your products or whatever they do um, for you or perform the services, but they also have a wealth of experience in their own right, and so you can create a, a corporate voice that um, that includes that that sort of pulls minds that experience if you like and makes it available for people um, who are your potential customers and in that way you can um, you can create a rounded set of content so that um so that you, you make a friend and then sell them something. One company that used to do that really well, I remember from my PhD, was New England Biolabs. That they made the, their um, their manual. So that was pre-internet as well, just in the beginning of internet. And um, they made a manual that uh, was packed with all sorts of information that you may or may not need to do experiments. And it was as a molecular biologist, that was that was a gold dust. And NEB, I still have a lot of affection for them as a company just because they influenced me at that early stage. And then we always bought their stuff because you were familiar with them. So that's an example of what you could do on paper, but you can also do it in a a channel like Bite Size Bio or your own uh, blog or whatever. Just get more rounded in the content that you're producing so that you're thinking about the whole scientist rather than just what you can sell them.
2: So when you're creating content and maybe you have dozens or hundreds of people creating content for your company, the next challenge becomes how do you make sure that you have a consistent brand voice? And this is something I talked about with Steve Roder, who's the chief marketing officer from AcroLynx, which was a very uh, interesting conversation and, and one of the most popular conversations I had all year long. Okay. And then... At the opposite end of the spectrum, if we uh, clamp down too hard or without thinking about how we want to sound to our customers, you have the opposite problem, which is um, failing what people might call the Pepsi challenges. can you um, can you tell your content from someone else's if you took off all of the branding and logos?
5: Yeah, I love that expression, right? It's kind of the um, it's the litmus test of uh, of uh, whether or not uh, the content is on brand. I mean, I, you know, a really interesting way to think about this is if I took a a logo of a familiar brand, let's say it's uh, Coca Cola, and I put it in front of you, uh, and you know, we've all probably seen these on bad PowerPoint presentations where someone just cuts and cut cuts and pastes a logo onto a screen, but they didn't really do a good job, and it's distorted and kind of has like you know, the edging around or something like there's an immediate reaction that we all have, which is that's not how Coca-Cola should be represented. That's not on brand for them. That's not how, uh, they, they would want to be perceived. And, and in the same way that that visual, uh, representation of the brand that translates directly into their content. If your content is not on target with the same voice and tone, uh, you're going to know. I mean, imagine opening up. Imagine you buy the new iWatch. Everybody goes out and gets excited. You buy the iWatch, and you look at the manual, and it looks like something you might have. Uh, you know, you might find it in, in in a toaster that you bought with uh,
6: you know thirty different languages. You know, gray printing and uh, you know eight
5: point font. You'd be shocked. You right. look at it. You said, "This isn't Apple. This isn't how they want to represent their brand. This is off." their, you know, this is not their voice. And, uh, you know, I think many people would have that reaction for all sorts of different products and companies that they're associated with.
2: Right. And I'm sure as an example, Apple wouldn't want to sound like Samsung either. They wouldn't want all their content to be indistinguishable from not just, um, that you would get the wrong impression, but that you would be not separating yourself from other companies. And I think in our industry, because it's somewhat, oh, it's honestly fairly technical Um, There is a a, um, tendency to say things in a very narrow corporate way, and I think there's opportunities for people to distinguish themselves by thinking about what their tone can be and how they can create a different experience for their customers and add some emotional component to it without um, putting off their customers by sounding silly or frivolous but you can still have a tone, and I guess that's what we're going to talk about next.
5: Yeah, you're you're right. Though that the tone can be a, a differentiator; it can be just as powerful, in fact, even more powerful. Because once people get past the logos and the visual representation of a brand, that interaction really starts coming through the words. Well, how are the, you know? And we, we so often overlook those, right? We we think that uh, you know we'll spend time on a on a, you know on a, on a on a brochure or something, and it's all about the design and the visuals, not realizing that ultimately, you know, this company is already familiar with us and they're looking at this. That's great at first. It might attract them to pick it up. But once they get past that, it's all about the words.
2: Now, Nick at Bite Size Bio, asked him, who else should I talk to? So he pointed me in the direction of Johannes Amen, who works for, Zeiss microscopy, and we had a fantastic conversation when I first called him up. We didn't even know what our topic was going to be, but he started describing to me the development of a mobile app that they had had created, and so we talked about that, and what he addresses here in this clip, and you should listen to the whole episode is the level of effort that it takes once you've developed an app to make sure it keeps working for you. Because you mentioned um, native apps and I'm curious about the level of support needed for an app. So at some point an app may lose its usefulness or the usefulness isn't everything it could be. So has, have you had to put a lot of effort into maintaining the app? Otherwise at, I mean, adding features or updating it or, or anything else because sometimes a company might make an app and put it out there and then pretty soon no one's using it anymore because it just hasn't kept up and now you've got a thing sitting there that doesn't look good for your brand if it's not doing its job, right?
7: Exactly. This is exactly the point. Um, Let's be honest here for a minute. Um, In a company, an app is a project. Yes, and this project gets a certain budget. It gets an approval. It has a delivery date, and then the budget is 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 ended. The project is finished, and the app is out there. But then, more or less, the real work starts. Um, Apple is now in the in the situation that they are pushing out a new major version of their operating system iOS every year. Um, new devices, uh, new uh, flavors of the iPad with uh, various screen sizes, with screen resolutions, uh, also for the iPhone and the other stuff uh, comes out maybe twice a year. Uh, So in theory, for every update, hardware and software that Apple is pushing out, um, you would need to check your app okay is it still compatible uh, does it really show nicely still on the on the screen of the new devices are uh, there may be new um, iOS features that you would really where you would really benefit and that you would really like to use and the main part is and we, we also know that from our private lives because everybody has has an so world and Dog has an iPhone or any kind of smartphone today um, you like it when you see oh there is another update for this app this is great I have to put to to install the update you know a bit of a tamagotchi effect also yeah. there's a notification oh oh I get a new update maybe it has new features if the app lies silent for months and for years, Exactly as you said, you tend to forget it, that you have it. Um, It looks maybe not as it's supposed to look on new devices. It crashes when there are um, major new operating system versions out there. So, yes, uh, you have to take this definitely into account. Right. You you need a constant uh, a constant uh, validation of the app. You need to constantly think about well, okay, can we can we improve this feature or what was the feedback, which is also extremely valuable, um, not only from from users but also from your own sales force. So uh, this is this is definitely a problem that we also run into from time to time. You know, it's like a. a yeah, light lab. You have to test it on the on the new hardware. You have to see. Okay, do we have a problem here? Uh, a lot of that stuff is covered by our contract with the developers, where, where, where I'm really glad about. But uh, regarding new features, regarding new graphics design, uh, LightLab now looks a bit outdated also. So there is some kind of major revision on the horizon. Um, yeah, these are also the facts. If, if you start developing an, an app and an app project and you see in the beginning that it's quite successful and people really like it, uh, this is actually the moment where you really need to start <laughs> planning, okay, we need to invest a bit more capacities, resources, and money on it.
2: Let's wrap up this Best of Life Science Marketing Radio Volume 1 with one of the most downloaded, and in fact, I think this is the most downloaded podcast I had all year long. I talked to Eric Zopmulder of SciQuest, they make procurement software, and Bill White from Offenberger & White, they're a marketing agency in Marietta, Ohio, specializing in life sciences, and we talked about marketing sustainability. Sustainable products, so large capital equipment, and the challenge of evaluating initial cost versus total cost of ownership.
8: So there's a there's both an obligation on the procurement side to get involved at the <coughs> right places to put in best practice, but there's also an obligation on the procurement side to be knowledgeable and to not be as intrusive, so that we don't we don't expend effort on the wrong stuff. I think, yeah. I think those are areas where not just the procurement department themselves, but the tool set that you use and the collaboration with suppliers. I think suppliers have a tremendous role to play in educating the right group right.
6: of people. That's where I was going to go, Eric. You're, you, t- you talk about a three-legged stool here. Uh, mm-hmm. The third leg is the, uh, the responsibility of the manufacturer, the innovator, the people that come up with the technology, the responsibility for educating the market like it or not, rests solely with them. If they have a better idea, a better way of doing something, uh, they can't permit um, the market to try to assimilate it through some sort of a third party. They have to take direct responsibility for two things. Number one is to organize the information in a way that we can spoon feed it and explain it to people. Number one. And number two, they have to be honest. The days of throwing claims out into the market on pieces of literature without any corroboration at all, I hope, are over. <laughs> and and yeah. that must not continue. There has to be an industry self-respect. Uh, uh, and, and in the case of those freezers, uh, the uh, Department of Energy... And the EPA have all now gotten uh, to the point where they're getting involved in how people um, can uh, can claim what they do, and and these tests have to be independently conducted, and it's an apples to apples thing. Uh, and only then we we like to tell our clients that a that, that the best friend that you have as a manufacturer, an innovator. The best friend you have is an educated customer. And if that customer is not educated, that is your fault.
8: And I think there's I think that what you said is interesting right? Honest and balanced because I think if you look at the marketing side of this, um, marketing tends to highlight what is best about the product, right? or what is best about the service and and what is what is interesting there is that I can walk in and I can say, you know this product, Uses this much less energy, right? And therefore, total cost is there. But if there's only one person in the world that can maintain it, the moment it breaks, I'm out of service for 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 months, right? So there is a, there is a true there is a true need for balancing
7: the total.
6: Absolutely, and that's why we stack up all of those uh, those value propositions have to be stacked up and a, and addressed. Uh, matched up to the organizational structure say it's a large university or a pharmaceutical company everybody in that enterprise is going to have some sort of a an interest in the the acuity of this decision did somebody just buy something down there in the microbiology lab that's going to land us a ten thousand dollar power bill that we don't know about happens every day
8: so so the, the thing that I, that I think is interesting from a, from a technology perspective is how can technology facilitate this and make it better, right?
2: That wraps up the Best of Life Science Marketing Radio, Volume 1. Thanks very much for listening. Make sure you tune in again next week um, after the Thanksgiving break. First of all, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving if you're here in the States. And if you're elsewhere, I hope you're having a great week anyway. Um, Next week, you will hear an interview with Joanna Rudnick. She's an Emmy-nominated filmmaker, and she's going to talk about how to use storytelling very effectively in your brand messaging.